1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Samsung Electronics is the crown jewel of South Korea's chaebol, the country's often family-run conglomerates. We examine its rocky succession and the new boss's ambitious plans to take on the world's largest makers of processor chips. And, as the latest adaptation of the sci-fi classic Dune hits cinemas in Britain, we look back at previous attempts. The genre is notoriously difficult to adapt to the big screen, but Dune's new version may at last be doing the book justice. First up, though, Nigeria is coming apart at the seams. Earlier this week, a criminal gang killed 43 people at a village market in the northwestern state of Sokoto, just the latest in a growing number of unpredictable attacks. The northwest is also a hotspot for kidnappings. Last month, Nigerian police commissioner Frank Mba paraded three suspects in front of the press.
2: These suspects played very key roles in the recent kidnap of over a hundred students.
1: Through a translator, he questioned each one of them about the abduction of students over the summer.
2: How many of you kidnapped the students
3: of Better Baptist High School? They said there are 25 in numbers.
2: How many of the students were kidnapped?
3: Students were kidnapped. They 126 students.
1: The kidnappers said they did it because they needed the money. It's not just the north of the country. Violence and fear across Nigeria are reaching levels not seen since the country's civil war in the late 1960s. According to UNICEF, there have been 20 attacks on schools this year, with around 1,500 children abducted.
3: So every time one goes into a school or university in Nigeria these days, there's a security check. But on a recent visit to a university in southwest Nigeria, I was surprised to find the boot of my taxi being checked on the way out. Kinley Salmon
1: is our Africa correspondent.
3: And I asked why that was, and I was told that it was, uh, it was in case we had kidnapped students, which really goes to show just how widespread the concern about kidnapping of students in Nigeria is.
1: And, and is, is kidnapping the, the principal problem that Nigeria has?
3: Well, it's certainly a very big problem, but unfortunately there is a much broader set of problems. Really much of the country is sliding towards ungovernability. There's a, an ongoing jihadist insurgency in the northeast. Uh, there's rebellion brewing once more in the southeast. And really across much of the country, you know, rich Nigerians and poor alike uh, live in fear of kidnappers.
1: And, and what exactly is going on in these places?
3: Uh, well, in the Northeast, there's been this insurgency, you know, mostly associated with Boko Haram, since 2009. And for a long time, that was the dominant jihadist force in Northeast Nigeria. But today, a splinter group, Islamic State West Africa Province, actually outguns it. And then in the Northwest of Nigeria, criminal gangs that locals call bandits are sweeping into villages, often on motorbikes. Uh, you know, there they threaten to burn down houses or block farmers' access to their fields, demanding payment. And these bandits are responsible for for many of the kidnappings of students too. And in fact, they've killed more people uh, in the northwest of Nigeria this year than have died in the northeast at the hands of the jihadists.
1: So the problems are are concentrated mostly in the north of the country then?
3: Well, unfortunately, there's also trouble in the south. Uh, In the southeast, separatists are trying to revive the, the breakaway state of Biafra. That was the state which was pursued in the civil war in the 1960s. That war killed about a million Nigerians, um, and today there's a separatist group called the Indigenous Peoples of Biafra, and last December they launched an armed wing as well, and they have since been attacks on election offices, at police stations uh, and a prison. And then the government's sort of come back with rather brutal crackdowns. Uh, Amnesty International suggests that 115 people were killed by security forces in the southeast uh, in just four months of this year. And then even the sea off the coast of Nigeria really offers little respite. The Gulf of Guinea is the world's piracy hotspot as well.
1: How is it that things have gotten so bad in so many parts of the country?
3: Nigeria's instability, you know, at root really comes down to poor governance. Britain, the colonial power, lumped together many groups in one country, Muslims in the north, Christians in the south predominantly, uh, but with numerous and overlapping ethnic groups in different regions. And then politics, Nigeria has for a long time been a tussle to grab petrodollars, which is a source of much of the government's revenues. All that has left many Nigerians feeling perhaps at best marginalised by the government, um, but at worst sort of brutalised by security forces, and that's fueled, fueled anger and insecurity. And then in recent years in particular, the dire state of the economy has made you know, taking up arms um, and kidnapping for ransom, for example, much more tempting. And then we also see you know, clashes between herders and farmers uh, across much of the centre of the country Um, They're both competing to use the same land, and that itself has killed uh, thousands of people, but it's also fueled other crises. Some herders have turned to kidnapping, and then separatists in the southeast, for example, talk up the dangers from these herdsmen to justify them taking up arms. Uh, And so the sort of vicious circle continues.
1: And how has the government responded to that vicious circle?
3: Well, it varies a little by part of the country. In the the Northeast, where the main threat is from these jihadist groups, the unofficial strategy is to try to contain the jihadists, but they're not, it seems, really trying to defeat them completely. Elsewhere, such as in the Northwest, where there's this big problem of bandits, the army does try to fight back. But often that fight is very indiscriminate, for example, by calling in airstrikes, But it's also the way the army goes about it. The army is, in fact, deployed now in all 36 states of the country, analysts reckons. But the trouble is that they and the police are often so brutal and heavy handed in their methods that they end up pushing more people towards violence in anger at what is being meted out to them.
1: And the net result is that people in Nigeria, in a general sense, feel that insecurity, fear getting kidnapped, you said.
3: Absolutely. I think... There's a very widespread feeling among Nigerians that the country's growing harder and harder to live in and work in, uh, and that has a knock-on effect onto the economy, of course. In the last uh, five years or so, population growth has outstripped economic growth, leaving people on average at least getting poorer. Um, you know, Opinion polls show that nearly half of adults want to leave Nigeria, and among the young, a clear majority wish to live somewhere else. And all this is, is in a way, particularly sad, because there are parts of Nigeria that are still thriving. Uh, Lagos, the commercial capital, has plenty of troubles, but is so dynamic that it boasts a large tech scene. um, And also Nigeria's answer to to Hollywood, uh, what they term Nollywood, a a bustling film industry.
1: And so in that sense, is all of this insecurity in Nigeria having effects outside in the region?
3: It certainly is, partly just because of Nigeria's size. Uh, You know, it's the most populous country in sub-Saharan Africa and its largest economy. And so when it struggles so badly... The economy holds back other parts of the continent, particularly in the region, and its conflicts are spilling across borders too. And that's already destabilizing fragile neighbors such as Niger and Chad. And then there's also growing fears of the jihadist threat in the northeast and north of Nigeria, beginning to link up with some of the other jihadist groups that operate elsewhere in the Sahel and sort of amplifying the threat of all of them. So there's no doubt the region isn't able to escape the consequences of what's happening in Nigeria.
1: And each of these things sounds like a kind of feedback loop. It's getting worse and worse. I mean, where do you see all this
3: heading? I think it's important to say there are also reasons for optimism. A number of Nigerian elites and politicians do have a stake in preserving the system. There's also, as mentioned, a very strong startup culture in Lagos. There are three fintech companies uh, worth over a billion dollars in Lagos. And there's also a, a still a sense of nationalism in Nigeria, pride in the country. So it shouldn't be written off entirely. But I think what's become clear is that you know countries that may seem permanent and solid really can fall apart, particularly if the bonds between citizen and state disintegrate. And those bonds in Nigeria look shakier than at any time since the Civil War.
1: Kenley, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. Its revenues aren't so far behind those of Apple, and it's got a cash pile of $100 billion. It makes televisions, computers, more smartphones than any company in the world. It dominates the market for memory storage chips. What it does next is down to the company's new head, Lee Jae-yong. After a succession as messy as the television show Succession, he has big plans to break into the far more complex and competitive business of making the chips that do processing. That won't be easy, but he said he'll be the last of the Lee family at the helm of the company, and he's got a legacy to build.
0: Lee Young, known as JY Lee in the West and in business circles generally, he's the third generation heir of the Lee dynasty that founded Samsung in 1938. It's a big weight of responsibility.
1: Tamsin Booth is The Economist's technology and business editor.
0: So it was actually JY Lee's father who really created Samsung Electronics as we know it, as a giant in smartphones, in memory chips, in semiconductors. He transformed the firm and J.Y. Lee has the task of taking the company on.
1: And how's that been going so far?
0: J.Y. Lee has had an amazingly difficult succession. First of all, in 2014, his father Lee Kun, he was incapacitated by illness. So JY found himself in charge, but not really with the full mantle of power, as it were. And then he became embroiled in a corruption scandal. So in 2015, there was a merger of Samsung, c and Chail Industries. These are two affiliates. They merged in order to help the succession. And in connection with that, J.Y. was accused of bribing a woman called Choi Soon-sil, who is a confidant of former President Park, to get the merger through. He's served two stints in prison. In any case, J.Y. was released in August on parole. He's been very apologetic with President Moon, um, stating that this was very much in the national interest.
1: Okay, so now he's out of prison and he's in charge. What's the situation he's confronting?
0: If you look operationally at it, the company's been doing formidably well because the pandemic accelerated digitization has, has stoked amazing demand for semiconductors in and, and gadgets and computers. And it's just been a huge amount of tech related demand. It's done phenomenally well in smartphones and in memory chips in particular, but those areas are a little bit long in the tooth. They're already quite dominant in terms of market share. So there's a growth issue. There's a bit of a discount on the stock market valuation that investors would like addressed. There's no doubt that there are some long-term decisions that the company really does look to the family leader to be able to make. So that would be around mergers and acquisitions. And so now you have the sense that with the succession secured, JY Lee can finally execute on on his vision.
1: And what is that vision?
0: Well, you've got to distinguish between the Samsung group, and it's not a formal group, it's a sort of a loose agglomeration of affiliates and firms of which the crown jewel is Samsung Electronics. So at the group level, JY is very much known for his initiatives in the pharmaceutical industry, biologics, and also in battery storage. But for Samsung Electronics, JY is leading a charge into logic chips.
1: So how is it that he's going to be able to break into that business?
0: It's not an easy one. Getting into logic is really hard. So Samsung Electronics already dominates in memory chips and memory chips are, of course, what you store information in. Logic chips are the kind of the brains of computers and and devices. And success in memory is chiefly about economies of scale, cost, just producing a, a lot of chips. Whereas the logic business is much more complex from a technology point of view. You're engineering at nanoscopic scales. When it comes to customers, they're looking for a lot more customization. So you're having to sort of anticipate customers' needs and respond to them. And Samsung Electronics is a little bit less used to that kind of interaction. And you've also got a big factor that a lot of people talk about, which is to do with the structure of Samsung Electronics. So it's sort of essentially four different companies. There's a smartphones business, a home appliances business, there's semiconductors. There's also the display or the screens business. And that mix throws up kind of conflicts of interest.
1: Conflicts in in what sense?
0: So, for instance, if you're Apple wanting to buy semiconductors from Samsung Electronics, you're not going to forget the fact that Galaxy is is your massive competitor for the iPhone. And TSMC, Taiwan's champion, has no such conflicts of interest. And you can see that lately, just in the last couple of years, Samsung Electronics has fallen behind a little bit relative to TSMC on both the technology and the commercial side of things. TSMC has widened its market share position relative to Samsung Electronics. But, you know, people in the industry are very optimistic about Samsung's long-term position. I mean, they just have the biggest ecosystem of semiconductor engineers. They've got huge capacity on CapEx. They're spending $37 billion this year on both the memory and logic side. The newest development is that as China ratchets up military pressure on Taiwan, where TSMC is headquartered, There's a feeling that TSMC's customers may well want to diversify away, um, have more diversified supply chains, not rely on TSMC just in case things go wrong and it falls under Chinese control.
1: So that is to say this move into logic chips could could also put Samsung Electronics in the middle of a a bigger geopolitical fight.
0: That's right. Again, while JY um, has been in and out of prison, semiconductor shortages globally have made the sector incredibly strategic and indeed you know one point of worry around the company while its leadership was sort of in a sense of a little bit absent that as the geopolitics change and as the US and countries in Europe and China sort of really put a massive emphasis on domestic production of cutting edge chips that maybe south korea would kind of get sidelined somehow or sort of get bypassed in that sort of geopolitical shift the other thing for samsung electronics which is really important to know is that of course china is a hugely important market the chinese handset makers buy a lot of chips from the company and so you know, you've got a situation where Samsung really needs to tread a careful line amid US-China tensions.
1: So a mix of of challenges and opportunities, what's your view on whether Mr. Lee's vision can in fact be brought to bear?
0: Some of that's going to depend on JY Lee himself. I think he's got some luck in his favour for perhaps the first time in a while. The company's just so well placed in the semiconductor industry, which is just a really hot place to be at the moment. And The question of whether it's going to go right for Lee is really crucial. I mean, he's going to be the last Lee family member really sort of in in managerial charge, making the strategic decisions. Last year, he declared that he wouldn't be handing on management rights to his children. And this clears the path to the top for Samsung Electronics executives which perhaps will change the mood a bit inside the company and whoever it is that does rise to the top I think they'll definitely be hoping for an easier succession than JY has had
1: Tamsin, thank you very much for joining us
0: Jason, thank you for having me
1: Plenty of great books are described as unfilmable Stories that are rich on the page can be stultifying on the screen. Science fiction books can make matters even worse. Directors have to recreate elaborate, literally otherworldly scenes and often wildly twisting plots. That doesn't stop them trying, though, especially when the book Concerned is a massive bestseller.
2: Frank Herbert's Dune, first published in 1965, was an instant classic of science fiction.
1: John Bleasdale writes about film for The Economist.
2: Many filmmakers have struggled to bring his vision to the screen, but now, released today in cinemas across America and Britain, a new adaptation, directed by Denis Villeneuve, manages to succeed
1: where others have failed.
0: Rolling over the sands, you can see spice in the air.
1: And why is it that filmmakers have been drawn to Dune in the past? I mean, what's it about?
2: The story of Dune is, at heart, a very simple one. It's about a young man coming to age. He is the son of a noble family, which is moving from his home watery planet to the Dune planet of the title, this desert world. The other thing about Dune is that it isn't in some ways purely science fiction. It takes on a whole historical texture. In many ways, the barons and the noble families are actually much more recognisable from the Middle Ages. Dune is a sort of film that suggests what would it be like if the Borgias had spaceships. And the most important MacGuffin of the film is the spice which can only be found on the planet of Arrakis, the Dune of the title. This spice is used by the navigators to fold space and allow for intergalactic travel.
1: So other films have succeeded in telling similarly complex stories. Why has Dune proven so especially tricky for filmmakers?
2: I think it's because of the richness of the universe and essentially what Frank Herbert managed to do is create an entire political and religious system with lots of competing values and lots of details. So that we have the Fremen who are the local indigenous people of the planet Arrakis, you have the empire over everybody and you have these religious power groups as well who who seem to be a mix of nuns and Jesuits all of these different competing forces are all important to the story. So there's nothing you can really cut out. But at the same time, there's so much there that it's difficult to include everything.
1: And who is it that's tried and, by many accounts, failed before?
2: There were many filmmakers who have attempted to turn the book into a film. Alejandro Jodorowsky is one who worked for years on his version, wanted to have Mick Jagger and Salvador Dali play roles in the film, wrote a huge script, got loads of artists to design his films, such as H.R. Geiger, who later went on to design Alien. But it all fell apart because it was way too ambitious. It would have been five or six hours long, and it would have been way too expensive. Then you had Ridley Scott, who worked on Dune for about a year but because of a personal tragedy, he decided that he wanted to make something that would be quicker, and he turned to Blade Runner and abandoned Dune. David Lynch, the celebrated director of Wild at Heart, Blue Velvet, and the Twin Peaks television series, had a stab at an adaptation in 1984.
1: He who controls the spice controls the universe.
2: It's a much maligned movie and it was a flop at the box office and it was a critical disaster. But it's actually got a lot of great things about it. It looks fantastic. The only problem is you get to about the halfway mark and essentially they rush the second part of the story. They just sort of steam through it with narration. It loses all sort of cohesion as an actual
1: story movie. And you reckon the new production has sidestepped all of these problems. This is finally the Dune that Dune lovers were looking for.
2: The reason this version of Dune succeeds where others have failed is essentially because this is actually part one of a two-part series. So they're not making the full film of Dune, they're making the first half of the book. This allows them to spend plenty of time incorporating all those elements. It sets up the world magnificently. Denis Villeneuve is a wonderful visual director, and he and his cinematographer and his collaborators have managed to create a really rich, dense and visually spectacular world about a girl on arrakis i don't know what it means dreams make good stories and everything important happens when we're awake The film was supposed to be released over a year ago, but was delayed because of the pandemic. But when I saw it at the Venice Film Festival, the end of the Afghanistan war had just happened on the news. And to see troops leaving a dusty desert land really synced with these images of what you have in Arrakis. This is a film which is about the exploitation of the environment for financial and political gain and it is about the exploitation of other people's lands regardless of their views so this film, if anything is more relevant today than it was in 1965
1: John, thanks very much for your time Thank you very much, Jason